Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show is an exploration on acquiring, operating, and growing small companies through conversations with business owners and private investors. You can learn more and stay up to date on this podcast, our weekly newsletter, and print publication, The Operator's Handbook at alexbridgman.com. And follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. My guest on this episode is John Joy, CEO of Buccaneer Pirate and Southern Star Dolphin Cruise, a company owned by Chenmark in Destin, Florida that provides seasonal boat tours. Sean was part of Chenmark's GVP, Generalist Vice President Program, that provides a career track to becoming a CEO at a Chenmark company. Individuals start with working on a couple projects within the portfolio, then take a non-CEO operating role in a company before moving to a CEO role. Sean's background was in control workouts and restructuring, which we talk about to kick off the episode before he found small business and Chenmark and inquired about their GVP program. Over the course of the episode, we talk about Sean's finance experience, what he pays close attention to given his restructuring experience, managing cash in a highly seasonal business, the wide array of services offered on Tourboat and how they interact, and the power of price increases. Enjoy. Today's sponsor q and is with Hood & Strong, an accounting firm based in San Francisco, offering diligence and accounting services to search funds and other investors. Partner Jerry Joe joins me today. What are some of the most common areas that where a transaction will break or fall apart as a result of a quality of earnings report? What will a quality of earnings report find that most often breaks a deal? So the quality of earnings is one part of the diligence process as we kind of think about the whole life cycle of the deal. And certainly things can come up before, during, and and after the quality of earnings um, analysis. But in terms of some of the common type of issues that that gets uncovered in the quality of earnings analysis that could potentially derail the whole deal or the trajectory of how the transaction is going to look like. Often, you know, we have three areas, I would say. One is around revenue recognition. And generally, the revenue is a diligence that would be done in parallel between the business diligence and also under the QOV. The QOV is going to largely focus on the revenue recognition if the revenue is properly recognized. And the issues that we come across with the smaller business is that oftentimes their cash basis reporting, and we want to convert to accrual basis when revenue is earned. And so inherently in that process of conversion, and there might be different type of adjustment that come through. In the healthcare you know, space, for example, you know, the charges is not going to be the revenue as you know, there's going to be a contractual adjustments and the revenue profile will look drastically different than the cash basis revenue. In the software business, if we think in terms of a SaaS where a lot of what's attractive about a SaaS business is you get you know the funds up front and for a one year of um, deferred revenue. But that natu- naturally pull back some of the growth and lead to a deferred revenue that naturally also leads to the different dynamics, you know, in, in terms of what that really means and how do we factor that in, in, in into working capital consideration of the business. And the question that leads to ultimately leads to more questions. Should deferred revenue be um, something that buyer get uh, dollar for dollar from a cash standpoint or is that going to be work? outside working capital. So that's one common situation that we come across. The other situations where it could also derail the deal is just the different types of addbacks 
management proposal ad backs that they want to get credit for in terms of adding, get to the earning. Now, not all ad backs are created equal. There are some that are a lot more complex. Let's say in a carve out situations where you're buying a division of a business, but oftentimes the seller would propose an allocation percentage of what is added back between 50% of this person's time on this division versus the other. It's not that simple in, in the real, in the real world. Uh, oftentimes it's going to be, well, is it all or nothing in terms of that employee? So it's not a straightforward exercise. It's just purely based on a theoretical concept. And whether that employee is going to change the, the whole revenue profile, whether production and it's going to be loss, loss of revenue and the customer relationship. So that type of situation, it may look different once we go through the quality, quality of earnings analysis. And thirdly, we would say the, um, things that we get uncovered, uh, doing quality of earnings are just exposure around the business and record liabilities. That's a one way to think about it. And this could be just that there are significant transactions or liabilities that never made its way to the books, legal matters, claims that is in the works that we're not able to quantify or seller doesn't want to quantify, uh, put on the books for good reasons. And other changes around regulations that can come into play, a good one that we come across often in the software world is the sales tax around you know, how Wayfair is changing the state in the way of establishing Nexus and what that means to the company. And it could end up being a pretty sizable amount of sales tax exposure that is not recorded. Excellent. Thank you, Jerry. To learn more about Hood & Strong, please reach out to Jerry directly at jzhou at hoodstrong.com and visit their search fund landing page at hoodstrong.com for more information. I also want to thank our other show sponsors, Oakborn Advisors, Ravix Group, and Overly Risk Strategies for supporting the show. And now to the episode. One piece of experience I know we talked a lot about that I'd love to hear more on is your experience in restructurings and turnarounds. Like, what are some like interesting lessons and experiences you had from that role that you had? Yeah, yeah, great question. It was a great experience. Worked with a lot of smart, hardworking people that it was a pleasure to work with them on on all these different situations that we ended up in. Keep in mind, this is not a scenario where we're actively looking for distressed businesses that we think are a good opportunity. We're sitting within a debt arm and just sort of dealing with the problem children that hit our desk, essentially. I would say, broadly speaking, the, the first thing that you'll learn in restructuring is you'll learn to focus on the cash in the business. Uh, you need to have a good handle on the cash flow dynamics of the business, how much runway you have left, and be able to project that out so you're not met with a surprise two days ahead of time. As you can imagine, if, if you're going to need additional liquidity, that's something that you're going to want to communicate with your investment committee well ahead of time and have very good rationale for why they should be allocating more capital to this business that has only struggled since they've been a lender to it for the last probably at least seven to 10 years by the time we own the business. So you, you have to make a somewhat compelling case why we should be putting $50 million into support this business versus just liquidating it. And I unfortunately never went through a liquidation. We the, the businesses I worked on were all businesses that we had taken over through generally out-of-court restructuring or sometimes portfolio acquisition. 
and we we would make a case and the partners would in all those cases agree that it made it was a business that it made sense to continue supporting that there were brighter days ahead and they had gotten into the position they were in for a variety of reasons that were ultimately somewhat solvable but beyond cash flow i would say there's probably three other themes that that came up frequently and then there was a lot of nuance to each individual deal but the the other themes would be one the unit economics you have to have a good handle on and honestly that was something that i would expect wouldn't be something that you really need to worry about because these are pretty large companies i mean they're all you are North America based, but sometimes global operations, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue operations all over the world. It's pretty shocking that they would be, for example, selling products ultimately at a loss to a major customer. So we I had a company that we were working with and we, after digging in for the first month or so after we took it over, we realized they were actually losing money when they sold to Walmart. And they just didn't really realize that because they were looking at a pretty simplistic view of the unit economics, but they weren't looking at sort of the full P&L that could be directly attributed to that customer. So they weren't looking at the specific returns from that customer or the freight to that specific customer or the work capital implications or, or everything. And we really tried to layer in everything we could that was directly attributable to that customer. It doesn't mean we would start allocating, you know, 6.5% 6.5% of the CEO's time, but everything that was reasonably attributable, we, we would try to burden when we're looking at the gross profit per customer or what we call contribution margin to go a little bit further down the PL. And shockingly, we were losing money at several customers. And it really changed the picture of what we were doing, how we were negotiating with certain customers, where we were focusing. And that was something that came up somewhat or a lot more frequently than I would have expected for this size business and is, you know, focus at, at Chenmark as well. But I guess I just wouldn't have expected to see it in sort of like the larger middle market private equity space, especially after a company has been private equity owned for that whole period. But I think you run into some weird dynamics with these sort of orphan assets that are overlooked for a long period of time. But beyond unit economics, say the other Two big pieces would be just making sure you have the right team in place. So typically, we'd be replacing the management team, or at least most of it, because the existing management team had gotten them generally into the predicament that they're currently in. And so that was usually the first big step was trying to find somebody with some industry experience, preferably some CEO or at least leadership experience and a plan and a vision for turning the business around. And we could work on developing the plan, but uh, you know, some sort of framework and, and idea of, of what they want to do with the business. And we would bring in always a new CEO and generally you know, a lot of new C-suite team members to, to support them with, with their help after we brought in the CEO and maybe a new chairman of the board or something like that. And then once we had the team in place, it's, it's making sure that their incentives are fully aligned with our incentives, which usually at the time we were taking over was not the case because they would be cut in at the equity level, but the equity is underwater at that point, which is why we're taking over because business has $400 million of debt and an enterprise value of $350 million. Well, 
that's a problem. <laughs> so, and if they're cut in at the equity level, their incentive is only really to make these bet the company moonshot type bets because if it goes to zero or it goes to 400, it makes no difference to them. It only makes a difference to them if they get to $500 million of enterprise value because they're now clearing the debt, which is a problem because we don't want them to be taking exclusively super high risk, super high reward bets. We want them to be you know, playing for also keeping the $350 million of enterprise value that's already in place that's at least partially covering the principal value of the debt. So you, you really want to make sure that your incentives are fully aligned. If they have sort of asymmetric upside, you don't because you still have all of your principal at risk. That's that's a problem. Given this experience in restructurings that you've had, what are some habits you have today as CEO that come from that experience? Like what things do you do or check or monitor or really care about that you can tie directly back to that experience? Yeah, great question. I think it's really a focus on those three things. And I would also say it's, it's honestly pretty similar to what Chenmark already focused on. So it wasn't like I was coming out of left field with a focus on cash, unit economics, and having the right people in place. Those are, <laughs> broadly speaking, you know, three similar themes that are relevant to pretty much any investment or, or you know, successfully running any business, whether it's a restructuring of a middle market PE business or it's you know regional commercial landscaping business. It doesn't really matter. You still need to make sure that you know your economics. You need to make sure that you have a team who can execute at a high level consistently, and you need to make sure that they're incentivized to do so. And so all three things that I focus on, maybe somewhat more cash-focused than some people, I guess, or maybe somewhat more paranoid about legislation or liability or, or things like that, because I've seen a lot of those issues. But I would say, in general, the Chenmark partners have a have a healthy level of paranoia, which I think is honestly really important as an, as an operator or as an investor, and certainly a focus on on all those three things that I mentioned. Yeah, it's kind of funny. A CEO has to kind of walk this fine balance between optimism and paranoia and make sure you're kind of right in the middle on most days. How did you connect with Chenmark and what made the model so interesting to you? Yeah, I so I initially heard about Chenmark on on another podcast. And don't worry, I won't advertise other podcasts on your show. But I, I heard about them and it's just sort of stuck out in my mind. I wasn't really familiar at the time with the search fund space or the you know, hold co space, small business hold co space or whatever term you want to use. You know, I was really at least up to that point only familiar with more of the traditional finance career paths. So I just thought the whole thing was pretty interesting. I always wanted to be in small business. So that piece was very compelling. I think that was probably the primary selling point for me that I had the opportunity to potentially run something myself sooner rather than later. And so I, I reached out and started going through the the process, the interview process. And the more that I talked to people and got to know the team and listened to other podcasts that where James Fisher Palmer were interviewed, the, the more I felt like it'd be a great fit. And, and fortunately, it's been a lot of fun 
so far. I also, once I started learning about the space, sort of thought about the search fund, traditional self-funded route, but I always kind of been a more of a team sport than a personal sport or one-on-one sport kind of person. I just feel like it'd be honestly a bit lonely to do a search fund by yourself. I know you have outside investors, but I just really like having somebody to bounce ideas off of, talk to your problems with. And it's nice having not only like the support infrastructure that Chenmark has, but also just a team of other operators who are going through, if not the same challenges as you, very similar challenges either going through or have already gone through who you can talk with and, you know, share lessons learned with. And I personally really appreciate and value that. Yeah. And so when you joined Chenmark, what kind of work or roles did you have and any key learnings from those experiences before the CEO role? Yeah. Yeah. So I, when I first started Chenmark, I was, I moved up to Portland, Maine, where they're based, which is an awesome city. Highly recommend it if you've never been. And I was helping with search and sort of one-off ad hoc projects, almost like a consulting type project for individual portfolio companies with really whatever they needed an extra set of hands on. They were typically some type of analytical work where I had a lot of experience already spending way too much time in Excel and things like that. So doing more of that and the, so the search and the sort of ad hoc projects for the portfolio companies wasn't totally new. I would say it was pretty similar to what I was doing in the restructuring world. The difference there was these companies were generally not losing money and generally performing. So that was a nice change of pace. And then after about six months in Portland, I moved to a commercial landscaping business that Chenmark owned in Massachusetts. And I took over as CFO there. And that business was going through a a tough stretch, I think, which I think was probably part of the reason that they wanted me to to go down there because that was sort of my background up until that point was working on businesses that were having some sort of some sort of issue. And really what had happened there is they had fixed multi-year fixed revenue contracts and their input costs were rising dramatically. As you know, we've all seen in the news plenty that the cost of labor has increased dramatically, the cost of gas was increasing dramatically, fertilizer was increasing dramatically, used cars or, or new cars were the prices were increasing dramatically. So basically every major input cost into the business was up double digit percent, sometimes a hundred percent plus year over year. And revenue was fairly static, at least on a per hour basis. So what we needed to do was reprice the book of business as quickly as possible. So usually you're trying to minimize your customer churn, but in this case, we were kind of going the opposite direction and really just trying to focus on our more profitable customers and turn the book as quickly as we could to reset pricing on as much of the book of business as possible. Unfortunately, the team there after I left has done an awesome job and they're having a huge bounce back year, which is a lot of fun to see. You know, I'm glad I played a small part in that, but it's been awesome to sort of see them execute throughout this year and see where they're at today because it's worlds apart from where they were 
12 months ago. But yeah, that was, that was a great experience to be in the seat and actually managing people and working on the ground with a team at a small business, which is just an extremely different experience for, versus working with a much smaller team at more of a board level rather than, you know, having one-on-one conversations with a ton of different people at a, at a small business. And when going from the CFO role to the CEO role, at that point, you've been managing people and running or managing a P&L and some of these other things. But were there any kind of final learning curves that you had to make early on as a CEO to fully get up to speed and what that role required? Yeah, I think the, the CFO role prepared me fairly well for that. But I would say what was surprising was the amount of time that you're going to be dealing with personnel issues, especially at the landscaping company, because it's it's a services business, right? So you, you need a lot of people to deliver ultimately deliver those services. So there were, you know, 200 plus people across multiple locations, and you're spending a, at least at the time, I was spending a shocking amount of time dealing with those personnel issues on a day to day basis. I would say it was really taking a lot of the of the actual workday, and then it was going home at night and trying to get the finances actually done. But that was not something that I was doing as much in the office. And we were also going through a, a pretty large transformation getting rid of some of our less profitable customers, reducing the size of the overall business, selling assets, just slimming down and become a smaller but much more profitable operation. That was a good sort of learning experience where I think it was more of a management role than maybe a traditional CFO role because we were undergoing so much change and I was playing a, a larger part in that. And how much debt was in the business? Was it a pretty minimal amount or or not at all? Yeah, not a lot of debt. I mean, Chenmark is pretty conservative, at least relative to like the more traditional private equity model. They're not they're not levering anything up six to nine times with you know multiple tranches of mezzanine debt and off a highly adjusted EBITDA number. It's it's just a very different world. So. There, there was some debt, but it's a lot less than the world that I was coming from, at least. So typically, it's two, maybe three terms of debt, which is pretty pretty modest, at least in my opinion. Yeah, it feels pretty conservative relative to a more traditional PE structure. I bet that made the your turnaround job a little bit easier, knowing that that's one less thing to worry about, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. It definitely helps. Yeah, it's just even more to get out from when when it's that much more debt. Though, to be fair, when when you're the debt holder, it's you know you're you're restructuring your own debt, so it's not like you have to work with another party. And if a cash interest is what's crushing the business that you've taken over, then you're going to be converting some of that to to pick interest and and just increasing the principal of your loan. So you know you can play around with it when you're in the position we were in when we had taken over. We'd be the debt and the equity holder. So it's kind of all fungible at that point. You're just moving things around from one bucket to another. Yeah, that makes sense. So you, you mentioned you watch cash really carefully. And with a boat to your business, you mentioned that most of your revenue comes within kind of an eight to 10 week period of the year. What are some ways that you manage cash throughout the year where you have that degree of cyclicality or seasonality? Yeah. 
Well, fortunately, most of our costs are variable. We do obviously have some fixed costs, but our, you know, people is a very, so if we're not running cruises at certain times of the year, we're, our, our payroll expense goes way down. Our rent is variable. So most of our large buckets of expenses are variable. We obviously do have some fixed costs like our utilities, but it's not huge. So the nice thing is that it fluctuates enough that we don't have massive losses in the off season. But still, to your point, you, you do need to manage it. So you need to, well, you should project out to see what you're expecting to happen in the off season. And you want to be forecasting that so that you save enough buffer to make it through your off season from November to February until you pick back up next year and really start generating cash again. There's also working capital management to you know help improve. There's no real AR because people just pay as they come. There is inventory, though. Honestly, I would say I'm not as worried about carrying excess inventory in this type of business just because our the margins on the inventory are you know pretty incredible. If you're selling a plastic pirate sword that you're buying from China, it's pretty significant. So I'm happy to carry a little extra inventory and make sure we're not getting stocked out. Because we, we one of the changes I did make was going direct to as many suppliers as we can. So rather than buying from distributors in the US who are marking up the inventory 100 plus percent and then just reselling the exact same plastic pirate sword to us, we're going directly to the manufacturer, which could be in China it could be in India. It's 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 a mix, but typically not in the U.S. And we're able to get a lot better pricing on those, but we have to buy them in bulk. And shipping takes months because we're you know it's coming over on a giant ship. <laughs> you could send it via air freight as well, but it's obviously much more expensive. So if you can plan ahead and buy directly in bulk, I think in this case it's it's worth it to be a little bit less working capital efficient. If we had all of our inventory coming on one shipping container, which would be a beautiful thing, which is not currently the case, because it's it's really a variety of suppliers for these different items, which is basically all toy merchandise for kids. So especially on the pirate ship, there's just a ton of different, you know, toy swords, toy guns, hats, bandanas eye patches, parrots, you name it. It's quite a, an array of different merchandise, which sells quite well at, at very attractive margins. And then on, on the Dolphin Cruise, we also have merchandise on there as well. But we're buying from a ton of different suppliers. So it's coming over piecemeal. If, if I could find a supplier who could make everything for us, it would probably be two full... 40-foot shipping containers, maybe three. I mean, it's it's a lot of inventory. Just swords alone will sell well over 10,000 toy swords in a year, which is pretty crazy. Yeah, that's amazing. Kind of building on that further, one thing I've found interesting from our conversations, but also chatting with Trish about her business up in, up in Maine, the other tour boat business, is how many additional services there are or products you sell beyond just the ticket itself. So you have, you're selling the tour boat ticket, but you might also sell 
food and drinks on the the boat, or you have you know trip protection. This pirate show that I I had no idea about uh, that sounds awesome, but. You kind of walk through like, okay, here's like the base fare, the base service we offer, but then here's all the other services and and how they interact together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so you have your base ticket price, which is different for, you know, adults, kids, seniors, infants, etc. And then you also have at certain times of the year, potentially peak pricing for your most, your, your sort of highest demand cruises. That's something we implemented this year to just try to essentially capture more of that demand curve. Some customers are more price sensitive. Or more, it's more elastic for some customers versus others. So we want to be capturing as much of that as we can. And then beyond that, once you get on the boat, there's a variety of things that we sell as well. We have a full bar on both boats. We sell food. And then a wide array of merchandise, which could range from a shirt, that's branded to a hat that's branded to sunscreen, Dramamine, all sorts of different toys I was just talking about, or also photos. So when you get on the boat, you take a family photo, and then you can get sort of a printed out photo with a frame around it. And as you can imagine, the margins on photos are also quite attractive. Yeah, I I bet they are. How many of these were kind of new products or new services that you and Trish decided, oh, these are kind of interesting things we should add versus how many kind of came in with the business when you acquired it? Yeah, I would say it's actually mostly the reverse. So for me, what I've been doing is trying to focus on our higher velocity, higher margin SKUs. We had between the two boats over 120 different SKUs of merchandise that we were selling, which is quite a bit. So, and especially if you're going to start trying to order everything in bulk to get better pricing, you know, you're not going to want to order 125 SKUs in bulk. And some of the items that we had were selling really slowly. We're selling like one a month, whereas another, or, or put it to put it in perspective on a per guest basis, we would be selling like 0.001 per guest. Whereas we had another item that's essentially comparable or potentially even a higher margin selling, you know, 18 per or 18 per 100 guests. So it, it's a really, really wide array uh, on the velocity and then also on the margin. So if we can focus on the high margin, high velocity items, we can buy much more efficiently and improve our margins quite a bit. And I think personally, from my perspective, it's good to have some sort of variety, potentially something for parents, something for you know, kids of different age ranges for boys or for girls. But I, I think really it's most of the time, you know, the family comes into the galley, there's there's some different things and the kid wants to get something. So they, they'll, they'll get them sort of whatever looks interesting, whatever's there. Or, you know, grandma's coming in with her grandchildren and she wants to get some memento for herself. But generally speaking, if you're allocating dollars toward one item, you're taking it away from something else. So if we can focus on our best selling, highest margin items, we can ultimately be a lot more efficient, both from a purchasing perspective and a working capital perspective. How do you decide which products you're going to keep? Like, What are your criteria for, we're going to keep this product versus we're going to cut this one? Is it simply a matter of 
how many you're selling, or are there some other factors that come into it as well? For me, it really comes down to velocity. So how many we're selling per 100 guests is how we typically look at it and what the margins are. And then, but, but looking at both what our margins are today, because a lot of this inventory we bought from U.S. distributors, typically our margins were in the 40 to 50% range. But if we can buy direct, we can do quite a bit better than that. So looking at what our margins are, what we think they can be, and then going out and getting quotes to make sure we can validate that. But it's a combination, really, of the margins that we can get and the velocity of how quickly we can turn that over so that we're not sitting on a box of something that's selling less than one a month for years. How much work on pricing and figuring out the right pricing structure for each of these things have you have you spent time on there's we did an article in the the handbook with trish about finding the right pricing matrix for your tickets but it's, mm-hmm. i find pricing really interesting like having a something like sometimes there's like a it's there's value to having a really high-end product that's really expensive just to make like your best-selling product look cheaper in comparison like how much of that kind of pricing experimentation did you do or have you been doing yeah, that's a great question. I think it's probably the most impactful lever you can pull and often a lever that small businesses are reticent to pull for a variety of reasons. But I typically talk to the team. So when we review financials every month, which they absolutely love doing, I typically talk about the changes in the business in terms of three different levels, which are pricing, productivity, how efficient you can be, and then profitable new business. Can you add incremental new business? Of course, assuming it's profitable. But pricing, to your question directly, is, in my opinion, the most impactful. And that's certainly been the case, at least for our business. Because any improvement you're making there is 100% of that is dropping straight to your bottom line. So you know, if you're able to increase your price per guest by $3, you know, it doesn't sound like much. But if you have 130,000 passengers, that's $390,000 directly to your bottom line, which is pretty impactful for the size businesses that we're talking about. So for our business, what I did was essentially look at all of the other competitors in the area and looked at the pricing for our business for a family of four on a per trip or a per hour basis, because they're not all the exact same length. So try to look at it a few different ways, get an idea of roughly where we are. And there's some nuances there. Some people offer a free drink with your ticket or, or whatever. But you know, generally try to get a feel for where we are in the market relative to all the competitors in our area. And when we looked at that, we stacked up these 20 odd different dolphin tours in the area. We were in the bottom half uh, on a pricing from a pricing perspective. So we were relatively inexpensive and we're actually the original dolphin cruise in the area. We have the most reviews, the highest reviews, been around the longest, largest boat, air conditioned cabin, which nobody else has. It's just like, if we think we're delivering a good service and I, I think we are, the whole team agreed. They think we are delivering a good service. We have the best reviews. So according to our customers, they think we're delivering a premium service, why are we not priced like that? Why are we priced like one of the lesser services in the area? And so we reset our pricing to essentially be not the highest, but towards the top, depending on how you look at it, per trip or or per hour 
And then we also implemented trip protection. So you can add 10% onto your cart, essentially to protect to be able to reschedule or cancel at any time up to just before your cruise or otherwise it's a final sale. So that's effectively another price increase. And then we also implemented peak pricing. So at our most popular times, so our sunset cruise in June, which sells out four days ahead of time, it's going to be $2 more per ticket versus the 1 p.m. cruise, which you know is a lot less in demand because it's not as scenic, it's a lot hotter, whatever it may be. But just trying to sort of smooth that demand curve out and capture more of the demand curve where certain customers have a higher willingness to pay. So all of that was quite significant to our business. At the end of the day, we actually had a lot less guests this year because we had a lot less tourists in Florida. I did have a concern once. So we raised prices and then you know, you're, you're looking at your, your trends and you're seeing your your guest counts are down. It's like, well, was that really the right decision? Did I end up... Are my guest counts down because there are less tourists in the area? Or are my guest counts down because I raise prices or some combination of the two? But fortunately, we, we are able to get some pretty good data for the area. We are able to get uh, hotel occupancy data. We're able to get aggregate boat tour data from some of the OTAs that have a bunch of different boat tours that they sell tickets for. So when we looked at all that data, we saw that we were in line with or actually a bit better than the year-over-year trends from a raw customer count perspective. So it didn't seem to at least affect our customer counts really at all and made quite a significant difference on the bottom lines. That was a big topic and something we you know, looked at and changed pretty quickly within my first few weeks after taking over. And I think that's been honestly, probably the most impactful change from a pure bottom line perspective that we've made thus far. And how dynamic is your pricing? So if I want to book a tour in July, but I'm looking in February, is my price going to be different than if I look in May or June for that same ticket, that same tour? No, it won't be. It's not as dynamic as I would like it to be. Right now, it's just set, you know, a ticket in February or April is going to be a bit less expensive than a ticket in the summer, or at least a ticket at a certain time in the summer. Oh, sorry, I mean, like if I'm if I'm booking in February, like an airline, if I book, you know, six months ahead of a travel versus you know the day before the flight, like they're probably going to give me way different prices for each of those bookings. Yeah, so we're we're not that dynamic yet. For us, it doesn't like surge as it gets closer to the cruise. So you could theoretically buy a ticket two minutes before in June that somebody else bought in February and the price will be the same, assuming we haven't raised prices. But yeah, the the price should be the same. But generally, we're selling out for those summer tickets a few days ahead of time. So you kind of have to (laughs) at least give it a week at a time or so. Just because in the summer, there's so many visitors, tourists coming to the area that you're selling out well ahead of time, fortunately. What other, besides pricing, which we could talk about for hours, but what other projects are or improvements are top of mind for you at the moment? Yeah, so the the other things that we've, the other sort of primary levers that we've pulled for to, you know, make a difference to the bottom line have been productivity. So examples there would be we moved to 
mobile check-in. So previously you had to come to the ticket booth, talk to a guest services agent, get your ticket printed out and go to the boat. They take your ticket, rip off a stub, keep a little stack of stubs and make sure they have the right number and don't go above the 149 passenger limit. So instead of all that, what you do now is you just walk up to the boat and say, Sean Joy, party of two. They check you in on a tablet. The tablet is fortunately very good at counting. So it keeps track of how many passengers are on the boat. And it's honestly just a much easier customer experience. They don't have to worry about going to the ticket booth. So if they're running behind, they don't have to go wait in line at the ticket booth. They can just go straight to the boat and get on. So I think it's been better from a customer experience perspective. And it also saves a, a pretty shocking amount of time for the our guest services team. So we're essentially able to go from five people in the primary ticket booth at any given time. And plus, we had a secondary ticket booth as well. But so five people down to two or three. So that, that was a pretty significant time saving and ultimately cost savings because of that. And they were then able to focus their time on answering customer questions, on selling new tickets, on higher value add activities rather than just printing tickets. That was a big one. And then sourcing as well, I guess, you know, procurement, which is essentially just not buying from distributors and trying to go direct for everything you can has been another big project that we've been focusing on to get vendors for essentially all of our major SKUs and where we can buy things directly. So those were probably two of the biggest productivity gains that we've had. And we've offset that a bit by paying people more and increasing benefits, but that's also reduced our retention or sorry, increase our retention, reduce our turnover, which is cost and time saving in and of itself as well. And then the other big thing that we've focused on is just adding new incremental business. And what you want to be careful of here is making sure you're not just adding another cruise time and shifting people who would have gone on another cruise to that additional slot. You know, if you're keeping the same number of passengers and adding cruises, from a bottom line perspective, you're going to be worse off. So what you want to do is make sure, at least to the best you can, and you're never going to know 100% because that's not a control experiment in the lab. It's a small business and it's messy and there's a lot of variables. But you can look at the data a number of different ways to try to get an idea. So we, we knew we historically struggled. Well, first of all, we never ran on Sundays. So we, we started running seven days a week, at least during the busy time of the year. And the question there would be, well, is that truly additive? Or are you just pulling people off of Monday or Saturday trips and they're going on Sunday instead? But now you're having the same you know, 800 customers that you would have had within that three-day span, except you're paying for the cost of six additional trips. So the way we looked at that is we, we would look at the delta between Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or Saturday, Friday, Thursday, and see how that compared year over year. And then the raw numbers as well. And there is some cannibalization, but I think it's about 80% incremental, roughly. So I think still makes sense. It's more revenue additive than it is EBITDA additive, but still a net positive from a bottom line perspective. But even 
more impactful and much more important than that for us was it enabled us to be a lot more resilient because we're able to hire an additional captain. So rather than having two captains who each run six days a week, which is a very fragile system, because if anything happens with either captain, you're down. And again, keep in mind, this is a seasonal business where 80% of your earnings are in a 10 to 12 week period. If you're down because somebody has a family emergency for several days in that period, it's quite painful. So rather than having just two captains with two crews, we hired a third captain so we could do a five, five, four schedule, which made us a lot more resilient. So we actually did have family issues come up in the summer or, or, you know, a variety of issues where people needed to call out at the last minute. And we were able to accommodate that, which makes the business more resilient, which is a much better experience for the employees because they are able to shift things around when other things come up in life, you know, running boat tours is not the only thing that they, they may have going on in their life. They need to be able to deal with personal issues as they come up as well. So providing them with that flexibility has been huge for both us and for the employees themselves. And then beyond that, it's just trying to add additional cruises where you think it's incremental to what you're doing. So for example, on the Dolphin Cruise, we historically just didn't really have success with morning cruises. So rather than running any of our 8.30 cruises, we were just starting the day at 11. But if you're selling... Another way to know if it's incremental is if you're selling out all your cruises from 11 on, anything you add is going to be incremental, right? So this year, we experimented with adding one morning a week, and it was there were free donuts included. Well, it turns out people love free donuts. So if we just have one morning cruise and it's a dolphins and donuts cruise and you get free donut holes on board, that sells out. So that's great. So we, we can add that as well. We can try an adult cruise. We can try, you know, a, a specifically kids oriented dolphin cruise. But basically just we just keep running these tests of different types of cruises to add capacity, especially at the times of the year where we're already selling out the majority of our cruises. And we know anything that we can add will be truly incremental to the business. What strongly held belief have you changed your mind on? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I think one of the things that really surprised me in the restructuring world, especially was, you know, I think entering the workplace, there's like a sort of, at least for me, an inherent assumption that people would generally act rationally and within the best interests of the business, you know, keeping that in mind uh, in what they're doing. And what we saw quite a bit, especially when incentives would get out of whack, is both people doing crazy things that were really damaging to the business. And and again, this is somewhat of a selection bias because I'm only looking at the (laughs) problems, but I was just continually surprised by what people were doing. And then sometimes even, even keeping in mind that their incentives were not aligned with ours, it would just be completely irrational behavior that some people get into this sort of like hero mentality where they had to, you know, put the company on their back and they were doing things behind the board's back and hoping that, you know, they're, long shot bet to save the company would work out. But it was, yeah, I guess just pretty shocked at the level of irrational and seemingly crazy behavior that you can see in the workplace. That's just not something I expected to see sort of coming out of college and entering the workforce. 
Yeah, that is pretty wild. Any interesting examples or notable ones that pop out to you? Without going into too much specifics, essentially hiding evidence or directly lying about a new product that may not be working at all, but it was sort of their brainchild. So rather than coming clean and and showing the actual evidence, they'd be making up stories and hoping that they would get there at some point, but it did not work out. So yeah, there were some pretty crazy examples of shocking behavior that I didn't expect to see in the workplace at all. Like a small version of Theranos, like you're yes, exactly. hoping that eventually it comes together. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, less Enron, more Theranos. But uh, but fortunately, it all worked out, and we uh, obviously had to replace that person, but got another competent person in place and got back on track with the products that were actually functioning, which is pretty critical. That's good. What's the best business you've ever seen? Good, another good one. But you know, keep in mind, I spent most of my career focused on the worst five to ten percent of companies within the uh, Aries portfolio, and specifically about five very poorly performing businesses at any given time. But I know that at least from just a characteristics perspective, there are always these B two B software businesses that were in the portfolio that you know you. Would, we would talk about in quarterly reviews that had 97, 99% retention rates, you know, essentially complete ownership of this small niche where every single person in the space operating kind of needed to have that software. And the only people that they lost were clients that were no longer business. I mean, they're just these absurd. I think those niche B2B software businesses are, are just great business models. And Fortunately, were companies that I never really had to worry about or spend much time on. Thank you, Sean, so much for sharing a little bit of your time. It's fun chatting about pricing and restructurings and all the things going on in Chemmark. So thank you for sharing a little bit. Excited to have you again soon on the podcast and hopefully see you at a conference one of these days. Yeah, absolutely. It was a pleasure chatting with you, Alex, and looking forward to doing it again soon. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, Ravix Group, Overly Risk Strategies, and Oakborn Advisors for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com podcast. Mm-hmm.